Well, we continue in our study of Genesis chapter 4, and initially I thought we would get all the way to the end of the chapter. We're going to get very, very close. We're going to use the last two or three verses, I can't remember which it is, as a uh, transition into next week, and we're going to look very lengthy, lengthily at the uh, genealogies that are listed there. And ten- generally when we get the genealogies, we kind of roll our eyes and go, why? Why is this in here? Is it really necessary? And we're going to see some things that are revealed to us through that that make it very important. And so uh, not possible to get all of that information even within the brief genealogy that we're going to see today. So as we look at this section in Genesis chapter 4 and as we eventually move into Genesis chapter 5 next time, we're going to see a very compressed period of time from the time of Cain to when we finish the genealogies at the end of chapter 5, there is going to be approximately 1,500 years that pass. That's a lot of time, isn't it? Our great country has only been around for a little more than 200 years, and yet Genesis 4 and 5 will comprise a period of around 1,500 years. So as Moses is detailing for us this genealogical information and introducing us to these main characters, his priority is not to detail the activities of each of these generations, but he's on a fast track to get to Noah and the universal flood and the narrative that accompanies that in Genesis 6 6 through 8. So this period of history in Genesis 4 is called Antidevulian. I probably didn't pronounce that correctly. And it's the history of civilization before the flood. So this is the only biblical information that we have about life before the flood. And there are a myriad of accounts and secular writings that try to do history before the flood. But this is all the Bible has for us. By the way, most ancient cultures recognize and acknowledge a universal flood separate from what we would understand in the book of Genesis. And so we take the flood here as a direct result of what transpires as a result of what we read in Genesis 4 and 5. So this is all the Bible tells us about civilization before the flood of Noah's day. And while this period of time is greatly compressed, jamming 1,500 years into it, it sets the stage for God's reasoning and God's purpose in bringing about this universal flood that we're going to look at in Genesis chapter chapter 6 and following. So as we review, very, very briefly, Adam and Eve have been expelled from the garden because of their sin. They've given birth to Cain and Abel outside of the garden. Sometime later, year, some, t- some years later, Cain kills his brother Abel because God accepted Abel's offering and rejected his own. Cain's fierce anger at the rejection of his offering exposes his self-righteous independence and his disregard for God's requirement. Although the requirements of that offering are not detailed for us in Genesis, it is pretty much assumed that both Cain and Abel knew what the requirement was. Cain just simply disregarded it, had no interest in honoring it, and just brought something to the Lord. And for that reason, the Lord rejected Cain's offering. So when God confronts Cain with his sin, Cain rejects the offer of confession and repentance, unlike his father Adam, and is then cursed 
to living the remainder of his life as a wanderer. So when Cain went out from the Lord's presence to live east of Eden as a wanderer, he left unrepentant and angry at the audacity of God to punish him in the way that he has. Although he bore the mark of protection through the grace of God, he nonetheless left Eden full of anger towards God. Now for you and I today... Post-salvation, post a very personal encounter with God, when we understand and recognize this great grace of God, generally speaking, mankind is left humbled and in awe of and in submission to this personal encounter. Now, we're not going to get into the details of this uh, common grace, pervenient grace, and how some people are touched by the gospel and still reject. We're not going to get into all of that. But the reality is that Adam and Cain had very like experiences. Sin, confrontation, confession. Sin, confrontation, and rejection. One confession leading to repentance, the other rejection leading to downright rebellion. And so there is the separation now between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, that which would honor God and that which would would continually reject God. And this is what is going to be lived out through the lineage of Cain. So as we come to this next section, we must remember that at the point of Cain's banishment, there's three people on the earth, Adam, Eve, and Cain. His brother Abel is dead. Cain is now expelled from the area. He is to go east of Eden as a wanderer. And so remembering that we come into an incredibly compressed amount of time, we pick up in Genesis 4, 17-24. Here's what God's Word says to us today. Cain had relations with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch, and he built a city and called the name of the city Enoch after the name of his son. Now to Enoch was born Erod, and Erod became the father of Mahujael, and Mahujael became the father of Methushael, and Methushael became the father of Lamech. Lamech took to himself two wives, and the name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. Adah gave birth to Jabal, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal, and he was the father of all, of all those who played the lyre and the pipe. As for Zillah, she gave birth. She also gave birth to Tubal Cain, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron, and the sister of Tubal Cain was Namah. Lamech said to his wife, Adah and Zillah, listen to my voice. You wives of Lamech, give heed to my speech. For I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Now, as you might, as you read through this, you might go, well, this is kind of interesting. I'm not sure what this is really all about. Let's move on. Well, (laughs) there's really a lot more here than we could ever begin to unearth. There are nuances within the Hebrew language and the literary style that would take lots and lots of time to really dissect in its fullness. But what we're going to do as we look at this compressed period of time, we're also going to look at a compressed explanation of what it is we've actually just read. So we're going to look, first of all, at Cain. Cain's family. So we see, first of all, in Cain's family is the first son. 
The beginning part of verse 17, Cain had relations with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. Now, there is no way of knowing how much time has passed from Genesis 4.16 and Genesis 4.17. We would read through this, and we go, wow, so Cain left, and he just wanders away, and lo and behold, there's a bunch of people, and he marries a woman. Well, that's not the way it works. We have no way of knowing how much time has transpired. So we're told in Genesis 4.25, at the end of this, we'll look at next time, that Eve gave birth to Seth. And Genesis 5.3 tells us that at, that tells us this happened. At the age of 130, we don't know how old Adam was when he gave birth to Cain and Abel, but at the age of 130, he gives birth to Seth. And then we're told in Genesis 5.4 that after Seth, Adam and Eve had many other sons and daughters. Now, Moses' purpose is not to give a linear depiction of what took place. So, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. He's not doing that. As we're going to see in, Moses, in Genesis chapter 5, Moses is going to highlight some of this genealogical narrative that we're going to read. So we aren't told exactly how many sons and daughters Adam and Eve had. We aren't told how long they had children. But Cain's wife is going to be one of his sisters or perhaps one of his nieces. And so as we understand that, we go, ooh, yuck. Yeah, right, we go, ooh, yuck. But there's no other way for the promise of God, the command of God to be fulfilled when he gave it to Adam and Eve in 128, God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves over the earth. So the question is, how is that going to be accomplished apart from the reality of intermarrying? Now, Adam and Eve and Cain could have understood this promise from God, this command of God to be fruitful and multiply and said, okay, God, we're waiting. Are we waiting for a dust bowl and a bunch of humans to to appear out of the sky? How's this going to happen? We don't know. Well, it's going to happen through this process of intermarrying. The practice of marrying from within one's own immediate family was not forbidden until the Mosaic Law was given some 2,500 years later. Now, there's some pieces of this that we're not going to try to break down in great detail. But a lot of this has to do with the purity of the genetics within this first family and the corruption of that genetic line through thousands of years and the perpetual marrying and birthing and marrying and birthing. So today, there is a significant genetic risk found in intermarrying that was not present in the early parts of history since the negative effects of the curse were not fully developed. Now, the curse was real, it was active, it was impacting life, but as we have seen in our own culture, a continuing degradation of society, there was also a continual degradation of the genetic line that is going to be passed on from family to family to family. All of us trace our ancestral origins back to the first family, And so, although that seems very yucky to us today, there is no other way for the promise to be fulfilled, to be fruitful and multiply, apart from this intermarrying. So Cain, when he left Eden, the area of Eden, likely wandered for decades 
before he took his wife. We have no idea how long he wandered. If you think about marrying a woman and she being able to give birth to children, that would have to have been at least 15 to 20 years. Now we could say, well, with the genetic line not being degraded, perhaps she could have given birth much, much younger than that, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah, children, I, I, I can't get to that part. So likely Cain has wandered for decades before he took his wife. We aren't told how they met, where they met, when they met. There's no information at all. We don't know what it was that entered into the mind of this girl to marry Cain, who very likely knew that she was the one that killed her uncle or her brother, and yet she marries. We don't have any information about that. And this is all non-essential to Moses' priority and his point. Pausing there, we can very simply say there are many, 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 many questions that we would have to ask the Lord that are real and legitimate questions, but when we see Him as He really is, we will know in full. And those questions will no longer be nagging at our souls. They will no longer be challenges for our faith. We will simply know and understand. It will not be an issue for us, and it is not Moses' purpose in this point. So Cain and his unnamed wife have a son, the first son, and name him Enoch. Now this is not the Enoch of Seth's line that we're going to read about in chapter 5, who is miraculously taken from the earth, who never dies. This is a different Enoch. And the likelihood is that there were just a lot of repeated names. And as we look at the genealogical genealogical line of both Seth and Cain, we're going to see some similarities and some repetition within the names that are given to them. So as we begin this, we see the first son, the son Enoch, who is born. And now number two, we're going to see the open rebellion. Second part of verse 17 says, And he built a city and called the name of the city Enoch after the name of his son. Now there are two aspects of this rebellion that are subtly tucked into this verse that are probably not as apparent to us as it is to the scholars and those that have devoted their life to the study of the book of Genesis. So the first part of this rebellion that we're going to see here in letter A is, He, Cain, built a city. Now what's the big deal? He built a city. Well, God's curse on Cain was that he was relegated to the life of a wanderer. That was God's curse on Cain. I am banishing you from the region. You are going, he went to the land of Nod, which literally means the place of wandering, not a physical location, not a city. It is a place of perpetual wandering. So here in verse 17, Cain builds a city. However primitive this city was in its beginning, it was blatant disobedience to God. God said, you shall be a wanderer. Cain left the area seething with anger, unrepentant, shaking his fist at God. And sometime later, after he marries this woman and gives birth to a son, he builds for himself a city. Cain is defying God's command and, in effect, is showing God who he believes is the true boss 
of his life. I could envision Cain building this primitive city and sitting back in a chair with his arms, his feet crossed, saying, I show you, God, I'm not going to do what you told me I'm going to do. I am going to build myself a city. This is blatant rebellion against the command, or against the curse that God gave to Cain where he was relegated to living a life as a wanderer. Blatant rebellion against what God had said. Now, some would look at this action of Cain building a city, and they might conclude that it was reasonable. It was understandable. After all, did God really mean that Cain was to live every day of the rest of his life as a wanderer? Is that what God really meant? That's exactly what it meant. (laughs) So when you think... Cain battled with that in his own life. As you think about others considering this, and they say, well, is that what God really meant? Is that what God really said? What's that sound like? Where does that come from? It comes from the same kind of thinking that we saw in the Garden of Eden when the serpent came in and said, did God really say? God's not going to do that. God is holding you back. Same thing that is being exhibited through the life of Cain. He says, I'm not going to be a wanderer. I'm going to build myself a city. I'm going to make a name for myself. And I'm going to be somebody. Well, this kind of rationale, this kind of thinking, that concludes that this is a reasonable decision for Cain to make. It's not that big a deal to build a city. How long did he want her? 20 years? 30 years? 50 years? Isn't that long enough? Well, it's that same kind of thinking that very simply disregards God's command and God's word as if God didn't say it, as if God didn't really mean it, or as if God's word had an expiration date on it. Let me ask you, does the absolute eternal Word of God have an expiration date? Haven't you heard people in our day and age say, well, yeah, that was way back when. I mean, surely that doesn't apply today, right? Wrong answer. God's Word is His Word. It is eternal. It is not up for discussion. And it has no expiration date. Yet Cain says, I don't accept it. I won't submit to it. I am going to do my own thing. So this is exactly how the unredeemed think in regards to the Word of God. It is exactly how those who decide to be the boss of their own lives think about the words of God. He didn't say it. He didn't mean it. It's got an expiration date on it. Surely God understands. I'm going to do my own thing and make a name for myself. Well, the rebellion that is exhibited here in Cain building a city is intensified in the second aspect of the rebellion, letter B. The city is named after his son. He named the city Enoch after his son. Well, wait a minute. What's the big deal about naming a city after your son? Don't people name their kids after themselves as a way to honor themselves, as a way to celebrate themselves, as a way to self? Don't you see that? There's nothing in the naming of the city to honor God's grace towards him in sparing his life and allowing him to marry and to have a family. God didn't say you shall not marry, you shall not have a son. God never said anything like that. 
Cain, like Adam and Eve, were not deserving of the grace of God. And where Adam and Eve excelled in their confession and in their repentance, Cain simply doubles down on his rebellion. Not only am I not going to wander, I am going to name this city after my son in a total act of disregard for who you are, God, and for any honor that might be given to you through this city. I am devoted to elevating myself and my own name to the defiance of who you are and of what you have punished me and how you punished me in living my life as a wanderer. So rather than honoring God in the naming of the city, he exposes his indifference towards God by ignoring him altogether. In our world today, there are numbers of places that have been built and established that were established and named for the purpose of honoring and glorifying God. Likewise, there are many, 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 many other places that are built in honor of someone or of something else. This originates in the rebellion of Cain in his total disregard for the person of God and the grace that God allowed him to live his life under. Now, number three in our outline, as we move on, we're going to look now at his descendants, the descendants of Cain. And so we'll look at verse 18. Now to Enoch, the firstborn, was born Erod, and to Erod became the father of Mahujael, and Mahujael became the father of Methushael, and Methushael became the father of Lamech. Now, I want to tell you, I'm butchering these names. If you look at these names in the Hebrew, they don't sound anything like the transliteration, and we can't enough to really get it out, but just take what you see here for what it is and attempt to say these Hebrew names in English. By the way, I read this and I hadn't thought of this, but I was absolutely astounded by this. It is very, very, very unlikely that Cain and Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel and these descendants spoke Hebrew. We have no idea what language they spoke. And as we look at in the days ahead at the Tower of Babel, where there were many, many languages developed, we have no idea what language they spoke, but it's written in Hebrew, and therefore we have these Hebrew names and these words that communicate to us the Hebrew thought. Now you're going to note in this genealogy that only the firstborn son is identified. Cain and his wife and his sons and their wives had many, many, many other children. Again, Moses' purpose is not to provide the detail of each generation or even to list all of the offspring, but to highlight a single individual whose influence would be significant. Now, we're going to look at this in more detail next time when we look at the genealogy of Seth in Genesis chapter 5. It is very, very likely that the birthing of Cain did not stop at Lamech, but Lamech is being identified as one who had significant influence. And as we look ahead in the genealogy of Seth, we're going to see a stopping point that in some ways parallels the same thing, and that is the line that brought to us Noah. So it is very likely that Cain and his wife had many, many, many other children beyond that which is listed for us here. So as we look at the descendants of Cain, it is highlighted by Lamech. We're not told anything about the other children that are listed here in this genealogy. It just gets to this position, and we'll look at that position as we look at the position that aligns with the genealogy of Seth, and it's very interesting. At least it is to me. Hopefully it will be for you as well. So this 
This genealogy that is listed here is highlighted by Lamech. Verse 19, Lamech took to himself two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. So part of Moses' main purpose in these genealogies is to highlight and contrast them, contrasting the line of Cain with the line of Seth. And again, that makes more sense next time. So here, Lamech takes center stage, and he is going to epitomize the line of Cain for its rebellion against God. What we learn here is that Lamech takes Two wives. Lamech is the polygamist. This is the first time that polygamy is mentioned in the Bible, and it comes very, very quickly. Just as the first murder came very quickly, polygamy comes very, very quickly as it is birthed in the seventh generation from Adam, the fifth generation from Cain. So the mentioning of this is significant because it shows where the rebellion against God's design for marriage actually begins. Do you think about that? Probably not. The rebellion against God's design for marriage begins right here in Genesis chapter 4. So in Genesis chapter 2, God presents Eve to Adam, and after looking at all the animals, as beautiful as they might be, he sees nothing like himself, and God gives to Adam the gift of Eve, and he says, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken a man. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The two becoming one flesh. No mentioning of three becoming one or four becoming one or any other number becoming one. God's design for marriage were the two becoming one and here we see the rebellion against God's design for marriage. God's plan from the beginning one man and one woman to comprise a marriage relationship here. Lamech is credited with being the first to deviate from this plan, and it shows how he is going to increase the level of rebellion within the line of Cain. Sadly, this practice was was not limited to just the line of Cain, but was also permeated through the line of Seth, and it wasn't until the Mosaic Law that restrictions were given against that. And even after that, great men of the Bible like David said, well, yeah, you know, I'm going to do my thing. Solomon, yeah, I'm going to have a thousand concubines. They just say God's word doesn't mean what it says. It must have an expiration date. I'm going to do my own thing. And each of those individuals and many, many others were likely very swiftly punished for their sin. So this rebellion against the design for marriage is highlighted here. And now we look at number letter B in this is Lamech's descendants, which now continue the ancestry of Cain. So four of Lamech's descendants are named here, but that doesn't mean that these were the only children. He likely had many, many other, many other children as Adam and Eve did. So what is interesting to note and also important to understand is that even though the rebellious descendants of Cain did not honor God or worship God, they advanced civilization tremendously. And so we think about that and we go, well, I never really thought about that before. But the line of Cain, the descendants of Lamech, advanced civilization tremendously. So the reality is this. Our world exists under a common 
grace from God. Even the unrighteous enjoy a common grace that is directly the result of God allowing them to live their lives in this world. Yet those unrepentant, unredeemed, rebellious people don't recognize this grace, nor do they honor God for that grace. For that grace. So the unredeemed enjoy marriage. The unredeemed enjoy family. The unredeemed have made great contributions to the development of civilization. And this is a provision for man's life. And it brings to man great enjoyment in the world that God has made. Our lives today live under the result of a common grace being fleshed out through the unredeemed man. Do you think it was only the saved who brought to us air conditioning? Was it the saved that brought to us eyeglasses and hearing aids and light and technology that we take for granted? No. A majority of the advancement of civilization is rooted in the unredeemed who do so under a common blanket of grace that is given by God for the enjoyment of mankind. God didn't have to do that, but He did. And it's God's grace that allows us to enjoy these things. Think of all the developments within our world. Medical accomplishment, architectural wonders, industrial accomplishments, music, the arts, science, and on and on and on the list goes. And these areas of advancement of civilization have in large part been developed by the unredeemed operating under a common grace of God. Now I have it on my podium, this little device called a phone, And right now, Ken and Deb are in their home down the road, seeing my face, hearing my voice. Right now, I have the ability to transmit my image anywhere in the world where somebody in the remotest village in India that had Wi-Fi and a phone could look in on this service and say, I hear that man speak from another part of the world. I have no knowledge of who he is or what his life is like. And that is the kind of technological advancement that we enjoy today that is the development of civilization under the common grace given to this world by God. Isn't that amazing? And yet, they don't give any honor to God. They don't give any recognition to God. They have no knowledge that God has even made this possible to them. So this is why you and I today can go to a doctor who can diagnose a rare ailment and we can take a pill developed by a pharmaceutical company that has been developed by an unnumbered, an unnumbered group of chemical engineers and we can take this pill and it make us better. We can say, to God be the glory because it's developed under the common grace of God by the unredeemed. That's exactly what we can say. All of the advancements in technology and engineering and other fields have their beginnings somewhere. And here in chapter 4 of Genesis, we find a few that are mentioned for us. 
Now, it's probably not wise to go beyond what the scripture says here, but this is the origins of advancement of civilization that has taken place under the common grace through the unrepentant, rebellious line of Cain. So let our eye and our outline Jabal. Now, each of these names have a similar sound to Abel, Jabal, Abel, Jabal, Abel. You can see how those things connect here. There's some there's some significance to that, but we're not going to kind of dissect that this morning. So Jabal develops agricultural business. Verse 28, Ah gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. Have you ever thought about the development of of animal husbandry. You can actually go to schools and you can specialize in animal husbandry. You go, well, that sounds like a weird thing. It's agricultural business. As we learn from Genesis 1, livestock refers to all domesticated animals, not just sheep. After all, Abel was credited with being a shepherd. So Jabal develops the ability to raise large numbers of livestock for the purpose of feeding and supporting life. Probably developed some technique in pasturing. Probably developed some technique in pasturing near water. Might have actually developed the technique of taking animal hide and removing the hair and making making um, clothing out of that and leather. We don't know all the developments that come from that. To live in a tent is to pasture animals where there is food and water and to provide protection from predators. And so Jabal is noted as the father of this trade. Great men of the Bible, Abraham, Moses, and David all tended livestock. But the origins of this as a successful way of supporting life had had its origins and Genesis 4 from the godless line of Cain. So the development of agricultural business is a part of God's common grace and is a tremendous blessing to the world, to both the saved and the unsaved. Now, next we see Jubal, who develops musical culture. The name Jubal ought to bring to our mind Jubilee, which is a musical celebration of God's goodness and God's provision. So verse 21 tells us his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who, of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. So Jubal was the father of music, the cultural aspect of music in our world. So the lyre and the pipe is mentioned, which reflects a harp or a stringed instrument, and a pipe or a flute or a wind instrument. So he, de- he likely develops the chords, and the scales and makes the invention of other instruments very possible. And so all of our music today has its origin here in Genesis 4 through the godless line of Cain. Can you imagine our world with no music? The same chords that Lorraine can beautifully play that gives to us an opportunity to praise the great God of this world can also be played by godless, unrepentant men to seduce individuals into an adulterous affair and to a wicked celebration. Music in and of itself is neutral. It's how we use the music to either honor God who made it available through common grace developed through godless men, or we can listen to the music that is celebrated by godless men that draw our hearts and our attention and our affection to godless things. By the way, back in the 70s and 80s, much of music was celebrated as 
sex, drugs, and rock and roll, man. That's what it was all about. Music is a wonderful blessing to our world, and it's one of those things that God gives and doesn't have to give, and it enriches the lives of both the saved and the unsaved in different ways and for different purposes. Now, thirdly, the third psalm that is mentioned here, Tubal Cain. Kind of a weird name, isn't it? Well, Tubal Cain develops metallurgy. Verse 22, as for Zillah, she also gave birth to Tubal Cain, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron, and the sister of Tubal Cain was Nama. Now, as the forger of all implements, Tubal Cain is credited with the ability to make metal objects from the elements within the earth. He learned how to mine them, how to extract them, how to cast them, how to shape them to be productive within the agricultural world. And so as you drive through the fields here in Pennsylvania, and as you see these huge agricultural elements turning the soil, harvesting the crop, cutting the grass, whatever they're doing, it had its, it has its rudimentary origins right here in Genesis chapter 4. Now, very subtly, there is another usage for these metal implements that is being recognized here. And the name of the son who is the father of that, Tubal Cain, ought to bring our minds to the usage of these metal implements that are designed for agriculture, but can also be used as weapons. Farming implements have their origins here in metallurgy, but so do swords and knives and spears and other weapons. This gives us an insight into the deeper meaning behind the name Tubal Cain. Cain killed with his bare hands, now here, seven generations later, the descendants of Cain have the ability and desire to produce weapons, which is exactly what rebellious, sinful mankind really needs. Tubal Cain has a sister named Nama, but there's no indication of why she was included or what her contribution was. And so as we look at these three kids and the industries that they are now fathers of, these cultural skills, the production of food, the arts, technology, should be and can be devoted to the highest interest, interest of human life and to the glory of God. However... Civilizations advances apart from God have untold potential for evil, and this is exactly what Moses is contrasting for us as we will look next time at the line of Seth. So Moses is describing the great cultural advances that have rebelled against and are indifferent towards God. What God has allowed to be developed by the unredeemed through his common grace has improved the life of mankind tremendously. And here's the key. The point is this. These same developments that improve our lives have the potential for great evil and they offer mankind absolutely no ability to be redeemed. Zero. There is no redemption for mankind through these great technological advancements that have their origins here 
in chapter 4. These industries are neutral in and of themselves. It is how they are used. For example, as you look at the development of technology and silence, nuclear technology specifically, it can bring electrical power to much of the world. It can be used within medicine through any number of diagnostic devices that can look internally into the human body and see the evidence of cancer and then be able to identify a means for eradicating that cancer. But that same technology can also be used to develop an H-bomb, which can in an instant kill more people than nuclear medicine could ever, ever save. The microchip that can power our little phones to accomplish incredible feats can also be used to guide a smart bomb through our bedroom windows. Can you imagine a life without drugs, without painkillers, without antibiotics? At the same time, can we imagine life today without neighborhoods and countless lives and families under the control of cocaine and heroin and and other illicit drugs? All of these things are neutral. They can either be used for good to the glory of God. They can be used for bad to the demise of mankind. It's all in how they are used. But the key is culture, no matter how beautiful, how creative, how inventful, or how inventive or how helpful to the advances of life, it can never, ever bring redemption. No agricultural abundance of, uh, or no combination of agricultural abundance or the arts or technology can save society. The potential for the misuse of or the evil within a godless secular culture is what is highlighted here and what is now a foreshadowing of what is to come. And we see this in letter C, Lamech's declaration. Verse 23 and 24, Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, listen to my voice. You wives of Lamech, give heed to my speech. For I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. The savagery that is to depict the line of Cain is highlighted here through this song of Lamech, this declaration of Lamech. It is often called the song of the sword, even though there is no sword mentioned here. And Lamech, who now has a son who is the father of metallurgy, who has the ability to craft implements for farming and for weaponry to kill people, is now celebrating this technological advancement. And he is celebrating this violence that is going to be known by him and lived out through his life. And so this... Song begins with the phrase, listen to my voice. He's speaking to his wives. Imagine this man speaking to his two wives. Listen to my voice. Give heed to my speech. These are understood as demands designed to invoke fear and unquestioned alliance. You can almost hear him say, women... If you know what's good for you, you're going to listen. You're going to listen very, very clearly, very carefully, and you're going to do exactly what I say. Make no mistake, I am speaking today. It is here that we first see the curse issued to the woman experienced in its most negative way. Genesis 3.16 
Till the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth and pain you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And this is exactly what Lamech is saying. Women, I rule over you. He has the appearance of a ruthless man towering over these two women. After submitting them to both the humility, the humiliation of polygamy, he is now issuing a threat of violence against them if they do not listen, if they do not heed. He is a vengeful man who is going to forcefully rule over them. Now, it's somewhat debated about what Lamech actually means in this next section where it says that, he ate, that he's killed a man and a boy. It's not clear if he's actually done this yet or if he's simply threatening to kill a man for wounding him or a boy for injuring him. He threatens to kill this boy or this young man, this lad, even for an accidental injury. If you oppose me, if you come against me, if you even accidentally hurt me, I am going to kill you. This is the kind of man Lamech is. This is the kind of ancestry that we acknowledge these developments within our culture having their origins in. Not only can they be used for good, they are going to be used for great evil. Lamech is more ruthless than Cain and is quick to celebrate his remorseless violence as a badge of honor. The final part of Lamech's declaration and this badge of honor is seen in what he says here. If Cain was avenged sevenfold, then I will be avenged seventy-sevenfold. Clearly, Lamech's great-great-great-great-great-grandfather has told him about the protection offered to him by God Lamech just did not just hear about that. Cain's still alive. Cain's still alive and kicking and doing well. Birthing other children. Fostering this line of rebellion against God. And here Cain, excuse me, here Lamech says, if Cain was avenged seven times, the number of perfection, then I will be avenged 77 times, which is perfection multiplied. So God's promise to avenge Cain's life seven times is interpreted by Lamech as a badge of honor for Cain rather than a merciful provision for a shameful murderous criminal. And so the descendants of Lamech would come to regard this vengeance as their own rightful duty. What my father held as a badge of honor to act violently, I will act out underneath this badge of honor given to me by my father and by my great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather. So vengeance formally becomes a part of human tradition and it marks the line of Cain. Many of the great cultural advancements we enjoy today have their humble origins here in Genesis 4. They were void of any God consciousness or God's de- or desire to honor or serve or please God, just as they are today. But these initial advancements offered great improvements into the lives of man, but they also introduced new opportunities for evil by man. And it is against this backdrop that you and I live our lives today, lives that have been snatched out of the clutch of a sinful culture, by a God of grace who allows us to know Him 
and grants us salvation through Him and promises us an eternity with Him. To God belongs all the praise and all the glory and all the honor. Everything that we enjoy today, even that which had its humble origins in an unrepentant, rebellious Cain, gives you and I the ability to honor and please God today. Would you pray with me?